We hear a huge amount of AI, but one of the things that we don't pay sufficient attention to is what is the impact of AI on jobs, on education, on the workforce. And today, on episode number 299, that is our topic. I'm Michael Krigsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. Before we continue, you need to subscribe on YouTube. Do that. Subscribe on YouTube and tell your friends. Tell everybody you know. I am so thrilled to welcome, we have uh, two guests today. Dr. Shirley Malcolm is with the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And as you'll hear, she has had an absolutely extraordinary career. And David Bray is the Executive Director of People-Centered Internet, and he is the guest co-host and a subject matter expert on this topic. So let me say uh, a welcome to Shirley. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Please tell us about uh, AAAS. Okay. Uh, AAAS is, uh, as you said, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And a lot of people don't know the, the organization, uh, even though we are the largest general science organization in the world. But they often know our journal, Science Magazine, and the science family of journals. Uh, we uh, run various programs that focus on education, uh, on workforce, uh, we have a program that uh, focuses in on invention and innovation, the AAAS Limos and Invention Ambassadors, uh, as a way of highlighting uh, careers that uh, involve uh, invention and innovation uh, and promoting entrepreneurship, not just kind of regular education uh, in, the, in the field. So we have a, a broad range of things that we do uh, in connection with uh, education workforce uh, at AAAS. And Shirley, what is your interest in this issue of AI and the impact on workforce? Well, I worry about uh, the preparation of uh, the next generation uh, to be able to move into the jobs of the future. Uh, I worry uh, that, in fact, that whether we're giving them the education that they need, whether we are providing for their parents the training that they're going to need for 21st century jobs, uh, are the skills ones that are available to them? Is the training available to them? And I think that that is something that we all have to be concerned about uh, because uh, we need the people uh, in order to be able to uh, handle this kind of, uh, of uh, technology-involved workforce. Thank you. And David Bray, welcome back to CXO Talk. And tell us, what are you doing these days with uh, People-Centered Internet? Oh, thanks for having me again, Michael. And it's uh, great to be here with Shirley. Uh, with the People-Centered Internet, it's a uh, coalition that was uh, co-founded by Vent Surf and Mainland Fung. Vent Surf uh, being one of the people that helped make the internet come into fruition. And the goal was really to do demonstration projects that measurably improve people's lives using the internet. And it was actually at an event back in April of last year that I actually met Shirley at AAAS. 
we had a video address first by Vent talking about uh, thinking about the impact of the internet and AI on jobs and education. And then Sherry and I were both on a panel and I was inspired by both her insights as well as her, her provocative views as to what we need to do. And so I look forward to the very engaging conversation here today together on what do we need to do to prepare for the era ahead with AI. Okay, so to begin the conversation, Shirley, maybe you can summarize for us what are the issues around uh, AI and the impact on the workforce? Uh, technology has always made changes in the workforce, and this is something that we've all, all agreed on. And But the question is, uh, what are those changes? Are the people prepared to handle those changes? And do those changes basically fall disproportionately on certain groups? Uh, when we had technology moving into the office space, for example, uh, we had a lot of what was then back office work uh, done away with because of the, the uh, PCs and what have you that became available and people were working very differently. Uh, so there's always a fear of the loss of jobs. But in that particular case, it wasn't necessarily the loss of all jobs, the loss of certain kinds of jobs and the reconfiguration of work so that the jobs that were there actually required more education and different kind of training. And that's the kind of concern that I have right now. That is how AI is applied and which parts of the workforce are likely to be affected as AI comes online in different kinds of uh, sectors. And Shirley, if I could follow up with that with an additional question. So you talk about the need for possibly retraining. Do we need to even think about different ways of delivering education and training given AI and how things are changing much more rapidly that maybe a four-year program doesn't make sense? And are there different ways that this can be delivered? So if you could share some of your thoughts there. We have to train, we have to re-imagine education from the to totally uh, in order to address these issues. That means that you can't just think that you're going to solve this by putting somebody into a two-year training program. You have got to start the their education earlier in ways that you're not just focusing in silos, that in fact that you are looking much broader in terms of interdisciplinary topics, that you are using AI in terms of informing uh, us about um, what educational strategies we might need to employ or what particular patterns we may see with regard to uh, to instruction and understanding. So it's, it's incorporating it into education per se, but it is also uh, preparing people to deal with it as uh, in terms of the way that we educate them. So it's a it's a very multi-headed, multi-faceted problem. Overhauling the entire education system obviously is not something that's going to happen overnight. So how do we? What are the steps that we can take to get there, Shirley? Well, one of the things that I think that we really need to do is that the teachers who are going coming into the schools need to be prepared differently in our universities. So that means that you've got to back this all the way up into higher education in order to get the teachers who have the skill sets that can that they can actually use as they are uh, working uh, in a teaching and learning environment. But it also means that you have to uh, help 
uh, I think a larger community, the parents really understand that this is very different from when they were in school and it's going to require different kinds of instructional strategies. And it's going to require that students aren't just taught content, which is what is it, that they're taught how to think about these issues and that they're given the kind of larger uh, skills that will allow them to continue to learn because it is going to be crucial that they continue to learn. You know, isn't this, though, how is this different from traditional liberal, liberal arts that have been designed really to teach people how to think as opposed to just the, the content of the information itself? Well, I think that uh, that partly it isn't just the expertise, it's all those other skills that go along with that. How do we work with other people? Because in this these kinds of settings, uh, we are likely to be working in teams. How do we work with tools? How do, we, in fact, we capture the use of these tools for our own purposes? Uh, it's previously technology might have affected kind of these low-end repetitive jobs. But AI is talking about affecting what would otherwise be thought of as good jobs. Uh, if you have, for example, uh, imaging that is being done with regard to body scan, the way that a radiologist has to relate to uh, the information that they're receiving is going to be very different than previously. And so I think that the that it is, it's really rippling through the workforce, and in a way, you talk about the the uh, the, the preparation that might be needed. Uh, it's more in the form of education rather than training. David, I have a, a question for you, but I just want to remind the audience that right now there's a tweet chat taking place, and you can go to Twitter using the hashtag CXOTalk and ask questions and contribute your thoughts to share with our two extraordinary guests. So, David, uh, given that it's an issue of education rather than just training, what do we do? <laughs> How do we handle this? I'll put that hard question to you. Yeah, just, just throw me a softball, Michael. Um, so, <laughs> so, sort of like build on what Shirley was saying, what makes this different than how education has been done in the past I really think about as having three layers. The first is the awareness of how this is changing how people interact with other people, because it's going to be us interacting with AI and machine learning, but then that machine learning is gonna be interacting with other people as well. And we're gonna see emergent behaviors that we've never seen before. I mean, to some degree, we've already seen like how many of us either whack our computer monitor or try to shake our phone or, or get frustrated with our phone or refer to our phone as a he or a she. We, we anthropomorphize technology and expect it to behave like humans when in fact it's not human. And so I can easily see while maybe machine learning and AI will have a lot of great value in terms of the future of work, there's also going to be some things that completely surprise us that are unexpected, that, that no textbook has been written for. And so preparing people to be ready for that, being ready to learn. I mean, right. There's going to be some trial and error here. There's going to be mistakes made and having that acceptance as opposed to saying you made a mistake. Oh, you're out of a job. It's like, no, you've got to learn this new environment in which there's no textbook. So that's the first layer. The second layer is the community layer, because this is going to disrupt people's senses of identity. 
their sense of purpose. If, you're, if your previous job has now been done by a machine, does that somehow make you less valuable? I don't think so. But that's something that's right now is so much of our identity is tied to our jobs and our roles in this country. We've got to redefine purpose. And then the last thing is sort of the, the national picture of how do we have empathy for not just people that are going through the high school and college stages, but those people that have been doing the same job for 25 or 30 years and just found that that job no longer exists. We need to think about almost lifelong education delivery. And that's a different model and something that some people may not necessarily find as easily accessible or we may not have the mechanism. I'd like to personally see community colleges step up and play that role. I think community colleges could play that role for helping with continuous education. Possibly employers could also play a role. It's, it's just going to be such a seismic impact. And Shirley mentioned this at the beginning. There's going to create a lot of frustration, a lot of fear. And the question is, do we have a tolerance for people that can say, wait, wait, wait. We may not have all the answers, but we'll try to help figure it out. We may make mistakes along the way. There may be abnormal patterns that we get wrong, but we're trying to figure out how to deliver education better and create a better future of work for us all. Yeah, I, tot- I totally agree. Uh, one of the challenges, though, that I think is that we are not preparing people uh, in terms of those issues of identity and values and things like this right now. When I think about the Human Genome Project, by contrast, which similarly, even though everybody's not running around doing every, you're your own DNA or aren't they, uh, it, it, we prepared people. We had a period where we talked about the ethical, legal, and social issues that were going to be coming down the line with this new thing, where it would be possible to know whether or not you might be predisposed to certain kinds of cancers or other kinds of diseases. We had those conversations. We aren't having these kinds of conversations right now with regard to AI. And so that means that it's going to come as a surprise to some people that, in fact, that this totally changes the way you have to think about work, that you can't just basically sit back and rest on the last time you were in school, whatever that is, that may have been a PhD, but you can't in fact sit and rest on it, that you have to kind of continue to learn. That's hard. It's not hard to a certain extent because I think that people are inherently curious and therefore it is possible to basically tee them up to get ready for this. But on the other hand, that has to be validated. It has to be validated by your employers. It has to be validated by your union. It has to be validated by all of these other parts of society that right now there's no conversation about this. Let me ask either one of you, uh, excuse me, a question. So all of this uh, sort of large thinking about the education system and the future of education obviously is extremely important in the long term. But what do we say to people who right now are feeling the the, displacement? Their their jobs are being displaced. And AI is certainly only a piece of it, but it's going to become an increasingly greater piece. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say, as uh, David has said, uh, you know, there is this place probably within a fairly short distance from you called a two-year college. And I would begin to kind of see what might be available there. Uh, Look at what might be available in terms of online opportunities. Uh, There are these, there are, it is possible to at least uh, get yourself back in a position to feel like you can learn. I think that, that it is more a matter of fear 
uh, as to why somebody won't reach out and try to take that course or look at whatever. And to a certain extent, it's going to be what do you fear most, being unemployed and unemployable or being willing to risk going into a new area or looking at the other possibilities with regard to a livelihood. And to build on what Shirley said, I 100% agree, it is what oftentimes holds people back from going to that community college is, is fear of the, I'm now back in a setting in which I don't know everything or I don't feel familiar. But as Shirley framed it, it's a question of, do you want to have that hold you back and then eventually find that your job is no longer there? Or do you want to take the risk and say, look, I'm going to step in the field in which I don't know everything. I'm going to learn. It's going to be an unfamiliar environment. However, it's going to be paying dividends down the road towards my future. Absolutely. And, and, and the other thing that I would also say is I would love to see two things happen, which is way back in 2009, 2010, I actually tried to tee up a proposal, it unfortunately didn't get a lot of traction, which is, could we see either states themselves or maybe private sector organizations come up with the ability where you say on an app or a website, I'm currently A, I want to retrain to be B, what courses do I need to take to go from A to B, and then help look online as to where can I get those courses that map me from going to A to B. And so it's sort of like helping people chart their journey. And, and maybe that's, that's something that, that the private sector can do, or maybe that's something that individual states can do. It could help people along the way. The other thing, though, is also thinking about better linkages between what are at the state level and, and, and even at the national level between what's done with efforts on the workforce and labor and what's done with education so that they're having shared goals as opposed to divergent goals to think about the future, not just for the United States, also think about the world as a whole too. I think that it's not just the courses. Uh, to a large extent, it's often what are the experiences that you provide. I mean, I think about the that there may be volunteer opportunities that can get you some of those experiences. Uh, you may never have imagined be going into construction. You may still be, construction may still be there, okay? But you may never have imagined going and doing that, but you participate in something like Habitat for Humanity and you pick up some new skills. So in the same kind of way that you can basically acquire skills and experiences beyond what you might have been trained to do, I think that we've got to figure out like maybe where in your community to do that kind of an educational and training GPS to kind of navigate where this workforce is going. I was going to ask Shirley, if you could also expand upon that. So are there different ways that the, that education needs to be delivered beyond right now where a lot of classes are, like you said, you said it's, it's about the experiences, but it's not just textbook and it's... No, fun. it's not just like textbook. It is basically, it has to be active. It has to be active learning and it has to be, be focused on like problems and projects. What is going on in my community? You know, how would I address that? How would I begin to um, to approach it? What kind of questions do I ask? Uh, what kind of expertise would I need? And it puts the learning together in different kinds of ways. That's the kind of way that you talked about preparing yourself for a very different world when in fact you are going to be interacting with machines and other people and and so on in different ways than ever before. You know, we have a really interesting question from Twitter, kind of a depressing question <laughs> from Bob Russellman. 
who asks, what happens when AI can learn faster than is humanly possible? And so therefore, maybe even thinking about the educational solution is a diversion because maybe jobs for people are simply going away and we have to look at it through that perspective. No, I don't think about it like that. You know, the thing is, there are a lot of things that, quite frankly, that that already we have where the computer can do it faster. You know, uh, Google is a lot faster than my looking it up any other kind of way, and and the the, the kind of uh, of cycles per second that you can get with a machine is going to give me an answer to a complex. A question a lot faster. That's not the point. The point is, what do I make of that thing that it gave me? Understanding what it is that I have been that has been delivered to me, and I think that uh, that we have to remember that intelligence is not wisdom, and that it is often wisdom that we are looking for after we have solved whatever this problem is over here that the machine did faster. And I would well, actually to amplify what Shirley said 100%. I think the, the data shows that it's going to be replacing parts of jobs. I mean, right. jobs will be replaced par- fully, but it's going to be replacing parts of jobs. I don't think at least in the next, and I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing it's anyone who guesses as to what the future is going to be is probably going to be not completely correct. But I think for the next two to three decades, it's not going to be that jobs are replaced fully. It's just the way that we work is going to change. Right. And so you have to solve that at least for the 20 to 30 year period. Cause if you don't, then you're going to have a whole lot of frustration, a lot of angry people. And maybe we already have that to a degree right now. And so this is a worthwhile endeavor, if only to try and figure out the next 20 to 30 years, and then we can address what comes after that. I do think what you can do to prepare now though, is help people reframe their sense of purpose from not being tied to the job they specifically do or the work they specifically do to the benefits they provide their community, whether that is your vocation or your advocation. And as Shirley also said, where can you recognize that just because you have intelligence or just because you you think something is true, that is not necessarily the wisdom that is involving empathy and understanding that is much deeper than humans do. But isn't it true that what most people really care about in this context is, again, the, the simply pragmatic concern, my job is at risk, or I've lost my job, I need to earn more money, and therefore all of this talk about wisdom, empathy, compassion is frankly not that interesting to me. What do we, what do we say to those folks? Well, I mean, you are more than your job. And I think that that's one of the things that a lot of people just don't focus on. You are a lot more than your job and that that you find meaning through a lot of other different ways beyond your job. Uh, I, I often talk to uh, students and I talked a lot to postdocs. They basically have put in 20 some years, they've gotten a PhD, they are sitting there uh, bemoaning the fact that they cannot become their professor because the jobs may not be available. And so I challenged them on that. You know, you can take those skills and that way of thinking and you can do lots of other things with it. I mean, basically I did, I did not, prepare myself to come into this job because this I didn't even know this job existed. 
And I think that that's the point. The other part is, and I, this harkens back to the AAAS limos and invention ambassadors. Don't just look for jobs, make jobs, create, you know, discover what people need uh, and begin to provide solutions to those needs. There's lots of options out here beyond feeling frustrated about not being able to find this job. And, and, and to amplify that, Michael, I think I get where people are worried about providing and having funds. I mean, as a new father, that's one of my biggest concerns is making sure I can provide. That said, that may point to the larger macro picture of what can we do to reassure people that you don't have to always be worrying about that, that there's at least something that will help you along. And then as Shirley mentioned, the, the invention ambassadors, I do think we're getting to a world in which expecting something to be there for you may not right. be the case. You've got to make it happen. And for those that ask about, well, what, if, what will be the work of the future? Unless you assume that humans aren't going to have any problems, and have any in the next 20 to 30 years, there will always be a need for people to help solve those issues. Now, whether you're paid a lot for it, maybe not, but at least there will be a need for people to help solve those issues and figure out how to work through those things. And so there will be work there. That does get to the other question too, though, is how do we make sure that the benefits of AI don't go to a very few and pay them a lot and then everybody else is essentially serfs or not paid a lot. And so that, that is a larger economic question, which is how do we make sure it brings up everybody as opposed to just a few? We have a question from Twitter that I'd like to, I'd like to jump into the, this question that David just raised of the disproportionate uh, benefit that may accrue through society. I think it's a, it's a vitally important question, but we have a question from Twitter. And in the spirit of uh, stacking things, uh, Shirley, you mentioned that your that, that you that this job for you was unexpected. And I was remiss at the beginning of the show and not asking you to just to, I don't want to put you on the spot, but just to share your background because it's pretty extraordinary. No, it's pretty crazy. Uh, I was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, and as a uh, and I am, as they say, of a certain age. I'm over 70. And therefore, if you kind of add all that together, you understand that as a black female, I was raised in a segregated society. I went to poorly resourced segregated schools. I got caught up in the whole Sputnik thing when Sputnik went up in 57. Uh, we, we heard about it in Birmingham. And so <laughs> we were kind of captivated uh, with regard to the science and the things like this. So I ended up going to uh, college at the University of Washington in Seattle, a long way away from Birmingham. But uh, also uh, at that time, uh, it, in, a, in very isolated kinds of settings, if you know, there weren't, this was, science was not necessarily something that women pursued. Uh, and it, uh, there weren't a lot of African-Americans around. And so kind of like everywhere I subsequently went in school and graduate school and through my PhD, uh, I was not running into a lot of people who looked like me. Uh, I pursued the kind of, when I finished, I pursued the regular faculty track when I came, uh, uh, I was a faculty member, I got married, I moved, I went into a job as a research assistant, okay? And, and 
had to totally learn again because I had not, I had no knowledge of this field. And so I started in as a very basic base level and essentially the rest of my career heading education here at AAAS being concerned about uh, the diversity of the workforce, uh, looking at larger issues of of, uh, education policy and science and technology policy as it relates to in uh, the investment in research and education, uh, that came and built off of having to start basically from a totally different field. Could I have done this job without my, without having a science background, without all of the other experiences that I went through? No way. I basically had to acquire not just book knowledge, but a set of experiences and interactions uh, that would allow you to build a certain amount of reservoir of strategies that can lead you to be able to make good judgments. And I think that that's the case with all of us. We are not where we started. And you, uh, you're, you're very modest uh, because you didn't mention that you're also on the board of two different colleges and universities, and you have a large number of honorary doctorates in addition to being accomplished in in a whole bunch of other ways. I want to say, why do I serve on boards? I'm a regent at Morgan State University, which is a historically black college, and I'm a trustee of Caltech. Now, why do I serve on boards? Do you know, I learn a lot on boards. That's, in a way, my own professional development. I can serve give service at the same time that I learn. And then I can move what I learn in one place to another place. And I think that that's really uh, the way that we need to think about, about work, that you have the opportunity through your service and volunteer experiences to acquire skills and knowledge that then is available to you beyond what your quote unquote paid employment might look like. Okay, uh, you're laying a lot of wisdom on us. I love it. Um, we have a we have a question from Twitter. Let, David, let me direct this to you. Arsalan Khan is asking about the issue of bias uh, in in the data sets for AI and the impact of that on on this discussion. And and maybe answer that briefly, because I, I want to jump to this issue uh, that you also raised earlier of the disproportionate distribution of the, the benefits of technology. Right. Um, so I would say that both Shirley and I are, are very concerned about there needs to be more public discussions about what can we do to ensure that what machines are both being fed in terms of data and the outcomes that they are making are not as biased as they could be. I mean, let's first face it that we, all of us as humans have bias to begin with. Right. Uh, and that, that, that's, uh, that's something that through education and through greater awareness, we can overcome some of those biases, but some of it is just the more you get more experiences, you see the world in a certain way. And, and so 
we have to try and make sure that if we're feeding human data into machines to teach the machine, that that human data itself is not extremely biased. I mean, we know there's unfortunately cases of this. We've seen where past legal decisions were fed to a machine and those legal decisions or setting bail decisions weren't fair to certain dem demographics. And that, that's something that both Shirley and I worry about. We know similarly, we've seen apps come out where they do things that are just completely wrong, where if you hit the beautify button, unfortunately, it makes everybody's face lighter, and that's wrong. And that's something where the machine was taught something that was incorrect. And so the way we check this, I think, is first recognize that we humans have biases, and we will always have biases. Uh, and, and at the same time, if we're beginning to become more reliant on AI and machine learning, what organizational approaches can we do to have checks and balances? Could it be there is a board that is responsible for ensuring that that data is diverse and that board is not just people from your company, but people from the outside as well? Could it be there's also a board that's looking at the decisions the machine is making and saying, is this ethical, is this correct, and is this fair? And so it needs to be a larger conversation because it does tie to the other question, which is AI, if we're not careful, could discriminate. And in fact, we've already seen, unfortunately, some pretty bad cases of it already could discriminate and could also adversely impact certain people rather than other people if we're not careful. I, I want to just jump in there. Dave and I talk about this all the time. And I say to him, I said, first of all, we have to have much more diversity among those who are working in AI. Yes. Okay. Because quite frankly, uh, you build off of your experiences. And if, in fact, you don't have diverse experiences represented in the community that is actually developing this, you can forget it. From the beginning, uh, you're, you're feeding in, you're baking in bias. Okay. And so the notion that somehow you are just not going to be able to deal with this unless, you, unless the field has diversity within it, unless the attention to diversity is baked into the decision making that will go on about it, and there you there you need diversity among the people who are making the decisions. Uh, you know, I look at the at the companies that are here, and I look at the companies who are working in it, and they do not look like me. They do not look like me. They do not. They are not reflecting the things that I might care about. You know, because I see, I can see a time, for example, when through convenience, uh, we will have facial recognition technology in uh, uh, at the airport, and I will get stopped thirty times more than somebody else does. You know, That's we right. see That's this. Right. Yeah, we see it, <laughs> and quite frankly, as much as I travel, I don't like that idea. You know, it it is, in fact, I think we we are setting all of this up. That's one side of the setup for bias. The other side of the setup for bias is that it's a way that these base, these things, these algorithms, the stuff, what is coming into them. I mean, we already see uh, problems with regard to sentencing, parole decisions, mortgage decisions. I mean, it goes on and on and on. What more do we need in the way of examples to tell us that we have a problem here, that in fact, uh, it's going to be solved and it's not necessarily going to be solved by the same people who gave us the problem. Really good point. Really good point. So there, there must be connections between what you've just been describing and the... Um, the outcome, one of uh, the outcomes, one of which will be the um, uh, 
poor distribution or unfair distribution of of the the wealth that is the economic benefit that accumulates as a result of the transition of our society and economy to AI. So, any thoughts on that and how to and what to do? One of one of the concerns, obviously, is that of uh, what are the target areas? What are the sectoral areas? And who is working in those? By the all the demographics that we basically know about, right now a lot of of dangerous and more dangerous and more repetitive things are being done by particular demographics. And so I think being aware of the fact that we have to not only be attentive to that. But we also have to look at the issue of what is it going to take in terms of quality education and the distribution of quality education to begin to address this so that the populations that are now getting less of everything they need in order to benefit from this new, this new workforce and AI within the workforce are not, once again, kind of disadvantaged by having the areas where that is, that are open to them targeted as a place to really go after first. So it's like you're being slammed from both sides. And I think that we have to really have a discussion about this as a, as a country, as, a, as states, as, um, as localities. And we have to talk about uh, what is it going to require for, for everyone in order to be able to gain from this. And, and Michael, to build on that, with what Shirley's saying, um, John Rawls was a philosopher in the middle of the 20th century who talked about what he called the veil ignorance, which is we don't know who we are going to be born as. And the moment we're born, whether we're male, female, um, our race, whether we're a privileged or non-privileged situation, that colors what we perceive to be just and, and skews it. And so what he asked is, what would we agree to before we're born? And what, what he made the case for is first that we everyone has maximum liberty as long as their liberties don't impinge upon the liberties of someone else. And then two, even more importantly, to the point of education, that there's an equal opportunity for advancement for everybody. And this gets to education, which is if the people that are being trained on machine learning and AI are unfortunately all, all white males, that's a bad thing because the benefits from AI and machine learning will not be equally opportunities for everyone. And so this is a case where you do need to make the case for more diversity in the ability to provide that training and that education. And it's not just the education on AI and machine learning itself. It's going to be the secondary and the third area fields that come from this right. to make sure that everybody has at least regardless of where they came from. So, you know, I mean, Shirley's background is amazing and how she she experienced everything. Make sure everybody has the opportunity and that there's not one advantage given to one group versus another to help create the future ahead. Shirley, we're, we're just about out of time. So I want to ask you, and, and David as well, I want to ask you for advice to certain groups. And let's start with your advice to technology companies who are very much my constituency, right? Those are the very much the people who, who I talk to. Uh, what advice do you have for, for those folks? There are a lot of folks who do care. Well, you know, frankly, a lot of them don't, but there's a lot who do, and I think most do. So what advice do you have for those folks? My advice to the technology companies is do everything that you possibly can to make sure you have a flow of diverse and talented people 
don't, those are not either or people <laughs> uh, coming in to work and to be able to ascend to the highest levels so that they are in fact among the decision makers. Look at your boards, look at your advisory groups, uh, be able to uh, bring in difference. In this particular case, diversity can help you think your way through and think through better solutions. So really come at us. We have a program, for example, looking at uh, students with disabilities. Okay, and we have uh, to try to provide them with internship opportunities. We have had a heck of a time getting people to be attentive to the fact that we can provide them with talented students who they can employ during the summer, but they can, in fact, build loyalty within those students who might then be willing and interested in coming to them for a job and bringing their skills with them. So I think that this, this notion is not just what you say, it's what you do. And I've got to watch your behavior. And in this particular case, if we're not bringing those groups in, we have a problem. And David, uh, your thoughts on this issue. Let's, let's start with advice to tech companies. Sure. Uh, for the tech companies, it's that it's been shown multiple times that actually having a diversity of people in terms of experiences, backgrounds, actually is beneficial to the decision making of the group. And so for those who care, that probably resonates. For those who don't care, you can actually make the point that you'll actually get a better ROI with more diversity. And, so, and, and a better bottom line. Yeah, exactly. And so I share that because... As Shirley mentioned, if you're not getting that diverse group of people in terms of the experiences and everything like that, and, and again, it's, it's saying that they'll see things differently, they'll have different lenses, and they'll bring better things from that. And right. as recognizing, she mentioned, you know, um, people with different abilities, I think the stats are any one of us, one in four of us in our lifetime will develop some sort of disability. And so it could be all of us. And so we need to stand up and say, this is something that is good for the community, good for the organization, better bottom line. And this is what you can do. And like she said, it's, it's not what you say, it's what you do. And so that's oftentimes harder for people to see, but maybe we can start to get more good news stories about what people are actually doing behind right. the scenes to do this and actually begin to recognize and reward that. Okay. And so now, uh, finally, oh, I, you know, I should mention that I, I, had on this show one of the very top executives of ADP, which is one of the largest payroll companies in the world, uh, HR, talent management. I meet and, it every two weeks. Yeah, and, and his comment was on their, based on their research that diverse teams is a hugely important factor in ultimate success. Uh, but Shirley, let me turn back to you and, and let's end, and then I'll ask David the same question. Uh, advice for the government, for policy policymakers, what advice do you have for them? Uh, I think that we really need to think through not just the training, but maybe we need to think through our tax structure. Now, you know, uh, if I am required to go to school, what does that speak to with regard to being able to take a deduction. So if my job changes, okay, but what if I have to, if I need to get education for what my job is going to become, not necessarily go into a different job, but the job I have is going to become something very, very different. How do I think about being able to capture 
the expenditure that I might need to make in order to do that. And I think that there are questions about whether loans are available for less than uh, for less than full time um, enrollment. I mean, there's lots of policy things that can be done that can be looked at uh, structuring the, uh, the the payments in different kinds of ways. There's all kinds of things that I think that we can look at to see if we can make it easier for people to get retrained. And, and Michael, I'll take that question from a slightly different lens, which is, in addition to thinking on the policy side, what can we do on the education itself to maybe align their incentives to helping you find your next job? And one tangible thing that might be is, is there a way that programs, if you get accepted, might say, look, you don't pay us anything up front, but after you finish this two-year program, or maybe if it's even just a six-month installment of a program, once you go out to your job, you will pay us a percentage of your salary for a certain percent, percent of time. And so nobody has to put any money up front, but it really is about aligning to make sure that they're educating you that something that gets you a job. And it also helps a person say, I don't have to put money up front, but I can pay it when I actually get that job that can pay it forward. And so I'd love to see that happen and see if an education institution wants to do that. There may be other ways, too, that you align the incentives of both the institution to, to basically support lifelong learning versus just point to point installment learning. But you, one of the things I should tell you is that the NOISE program, for example, at the National Science Foundation, provides scholarships for teachers in exchange for their work in high-needs schools. Hmm. So there are some things, there are some models that are out there, and I think that we need to look at them. Agreed. I think we need more of that exactly. And, and we've, we've done it in the past. We did it with scientists. We've done it with medicine right. doctors. This is probably something we need to think about for AI too, which is how can we get you that training and then help you get that job? Right. Okay. Well, we're out of time, but this has been a very important show. I'm very glad that we have the record of, of this conversation to share with people. It's been an extraordinary show. You have been watching episode number 299 of CXO Talk, and we've had two amazing guests. Dr. Shirley Malcolm is, you need to just, just search for her on the web and just see her, her, her bio, uh, is with the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and David Bray is a longtime CIO and now executive director of People-Centered Internet. And I want to thank you both so much for being here. Shirley, I hope you'll come back and do this again another time. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank Shirley, you. you're a rock star. Thanks for doing this. Hey, love it. <laughs> and with that, I want to remind everybody to subscribe on YouTube and just be sure to tell all your friends and go to cxotalk.com because we have lots more coming your way. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.